Hello, this is Claudia Shamba. I'm your host of Digging Out. This program will set out to offer us a means of getting through November 3rd, we're past that now, through December 3rd, and through January 3rd, 2021. We're drawing on guests from anywhere, anywhere around the world, where we can collectively clear the debris from the last four years, the last 400 years, or even a couple of millennia. If you have some ideas for guest suggestions, please reach me at my email, C-S-H-A-M-B-A-U-G-H at K-U-C-I.org or my Twitter handle at C-L We'll be right back with today's program. Welcome to the November 19, 2020 edition of Digging Out. My guest today is Tom Bowman, strategic advisor and writing team leader for the U.S. Action for Climate Empowerment Strategic Planning Framework. The framework, for you to know, is an initiative by social scientists, educators, scientists, and activists to help the U.S. meet and exceed the goals of the Paris Agreement. Tom founded Bowman Design Group and Bowman Change Incorporated, a strategic communication consultancy. He works with federal agencies, corporate leadership, entrepreneurs, and leading cultural institutions. And I'm gonna name a few, NOAA, NASA, the National Academy of Sciences, and the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach. Tom's company received a Cool California Small Business of the Year Award for decarbonizing business operations. His work received White House Champions of Change recognition, congratulations again, and he was inducted into the International Green Industry Hall of Fame. Tom is a sought-after public speaker, appearing at scientific outlets, including CNN, NPR's Marketplace, Time, New York Times, Science, Yale Environment 360, among others. His academic training includes a Bachelor's of Arts from Johnston College and a Master's of Arts from the University of Southern California in Social Ethics. He is an author of The Green Edge, but today we're talking about what has just been released this late October, the book entitled, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? Tom comes to us today from Long Beach, California. Welcome to Digging Out, Tom Bowman. Thank you, Claudia. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you clear debris all over. It's a mess. It's a mess everywhere <laughs> yes. when we talk about climate crisis. And that's the term you use. And I think that's important. So it's a compact reader. What if solving the climate crisis is simple? And it's a work very long time in coming, a sort of culmination of your extensive efforts mm -hmm. over the decades. And I want to give you, Tom, kudos for staying focused amidst some very dizzying news developments for making this essential case. Well, thank you. This is a time that calls for extreme focus. You know, here we have COVID-19, we've got an economic crisis, we have this horrible political disruption of this election year and all that preceded it, and the climate crisis is not going away. 
And this year, we're all being awakened in the United States to depth of violence and systemic racism against people of color. So this is a time really for focus rather than from turning away. At least that's my approach to it. And I want, Tom, for our listeners to appreciate that you're covering very tough, intractable social norms that are baked into our American culture. And the word simple in your title is for some, it might be a little misleading. For some, it might be a little off-putting, but you take on the hard stuff in a very au courant way. So we'll, <laughs> let's, let's begin with how you talk early on about adaptive behavior, both appropriate and inappropriate. Well, let's start with a really basic question. And that is, how does the climate crisis make you feel? Do you feel excited? Do you wake up every morning feeling excited to create a cleaner, healthier, friendlier, more equitable world to live in? Or do you feel a sense of despair? Maybe you feel overwhelmed. Maybe you feel dispirited and even defeated because the, the whole problem feels too big and you feel too small. If, if you're in the latter category, you're not alone. An international survey last year found an overwhelming majority of people in the developed world don't think we're going to feel be better off five years from now than we are today because the system quote unquote the system just isn't working for them and here in the u.s about half of us think that humanity could solve the climate crisis but it turns out according to surveys only six of us think that we will so you know, you have this funny juxtaposition of despair, helplessness with this sense of the sort of cinematic emotional horsepower of a crisis moment that feels so big, so big that it's exciting, but also so big that we don't think we can do anything about it. And that's what led me to write this book because, because the important thing to understand is that the way we've been taught to think about this crisis is a worldview. It's a mental model. It's, a, it's an interpretation of reality. And that means it isn't exactly the, the reality itself. It's only one way to look at the problem. You know, we, we change our minds often when we find that the way we look at the world isn't working for us. And that's really the kind of the impetus for writing this book. So you use, Tom, a really powerful real-life situation to explain how the human reacts to a crisis. Could you give us a sort of a brief kind of summary of that phenomenon with the tsunami that occurred with the Java earthquake that set the tsunami up around Indonesia? Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of all the studies about how people get themselves into catastrophes and, and who copes well and who copes poorly. And if you watch on YouTube, there are videos of the 2006 tsunami that struck the coast of Thailand. And you see all these tourists standing on the beach as the ocean has suddenly receded and is far out to sea. And they're so curious about what's happening. And they're relaxed and, and they're strolling around and you see they see the wave coming toward them, but they don't run away. They don't react to it until it gets closer and closer to them. And finally, when it's upon them, they start to realize what's happened. And unfortunately, many of them didn't survive because their mental models and their behavioral scripts, this kind of rapid automatic 
way we assess the world was telling them, I'm on vacation. I'm on a friendly beach. The sunshine is beautiful. Everything that happens here is fun and interesting. Instead of the other part of their brain stepping in and saying, wait a minute, this isn't normal. What are the local people doing? Is this something I should be alarmed about? And should I do something differently? And I tell that story because it's, first of all, it's, it's very powerful when you watch it. But secondly, when it comes to the climate crisis, we don't want to be those people on the beach in Thailand watching a tsunami come rolling toward them. We, we know this is coming. We need to disrupt the thought process that tells us that because it's pleasant outside today, everything's really okay and I can ignore this. Yeah, it is powerful. And you have an adage that you flip this whole situation to what could be a, a simple matter. So let me explain how that worked. Um, uh, the image, the central image of that came to me years ago. I was an art student in college and I was struggling with a painting and everything I tried just seemed to make it worse. I just couldn't get it to work the way I wanted to. And one of my professors came by and he said, I tell you <laughs> what you do. He said, hang it upside down on the wall and go home. Because when you come back tomorrow and you see it upside down, you're going to see it completely differently. And the problem is going to reveal itself to you and you'll know exactly what to do. And I can tell you as the owner of a design business, I used that exact strategy hundreds of times and it works remarkably well. And it can be applied to everything else too, because what we're looking for is a way to disrupt the familiar ways in which we look at a problem. You know, this is a little bit of a, of a digression, but bear with me just for a second. Absolutely. We have evolved, our brains have evolved to make decisions really quickly. Um, if you're, you know, thinking analytically takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of energy, and it isn't very fast. And and if you happen to hear something breathing in the bushes next to you, you need to be able to make a decision very quickly to right. defend your life, right? That's how, that's how evolution worked. And so the way our brains work is that we, that we synthesize, we memorize experiences that work well, and those become behavioral scripts and we create mental models that don't require conscious thought. So when you, if, you, if you've ever noticed, if you've seen somebody normally a dignified person and all of a sudden they duck and they shriek and they start slapping all around their head and their neck, you know, they felt something that their primitive brain said spider and they reacted to it long before their conscious mind analyzed the situation and decided what to do about it. Right. Right. That's a process that, that is familiar, useful, highly useful, but it's flawed because it means we're not always looking at the big picture. And so when you think about climate change, I sort of thought about climate change in the way I thought about that painting that I couldn't fix, right? And the professor said, hang it upside down and you'll see it differently. And it dawns on me that this, this process of the way we think about the climate change is, a, is like those emotional learned instantaneous reactions. And so if we hang the climate crisis upside down, what do we see? And here's, shall I just go on with this? Yo, please go. So, You're getting to the, the adage here, the simple statement. Yeah. So, okay. So the way we've been taught to think about the climate crisis is that it's this enormous global problem 
that is an entanglement of interacting global systems. So we've got buildings and urban planning and urban infrastructure. We've got food production and food transportation. We have supply chains that span the world. We have transportation systems that get us around our hometowns, but also span the world. We're talking about ecosystems and ecosystem management and finance, corporate finance and international investment and international aid and governance everywhere from the local level all the way up to the international level. And these are all deeply entangled complex systems. And we've been taught to think about climate change in a way that says, if you, if you try to work on any one of these systems, pretty soon you're pulling on all of the others, right? right? And it quickly becomes too complex for any of us to manage. There's a term for this, it's called a wicked problem. Yes. And a wicked problem is a, is a problem that can't really be solved because it's too complicated. You can't define it clearly. You probably can't get access to all the information and data that you'd like to have. And so the best you can do is, is try to solve the pieces you see, understanding that you might create other unintended problems that you can't see. And so you have to do your best to try to manage this wicked problem, understanding that you're gonna take your lumps along the way. And I can't tell you how many books and documentaries and films about climate change and lectures I've heard that boil down, they describe this immensely complex and daunting challenge. And then they admonish us to somehow find the personal and political willpower to overcome these insurmountable odds, right? Right. All the time knowing that we're gonna take some nasty hits. And my experience with that is, and, and there's evidence to, to back this up, is that this just makes people feel small and insignificant. And everybody knows that willpower is a finite resource. That's why right. health clubs exactly. want all their money up front when you join, right? Right. So you pay a huge initiation fee and everybody's New Year's resolution falls flat by the time February 1st rolls around. And so it leaves us dispirited. It leaves us on the sidelines and it leaves us susceptible to the campaigns by ideological libertarians and fossil fuel companies to deceive us, mislead us about the settled science and encourage us not to take action. That's the Gordian knot, if you will, of our understanding of the climate crisis. But if you have to recognize this is just a picture. None of us has responsibility for managing a top-down master plan for global climate. That's the painting. That Okay, take yeah, that's the painting. That's the painting. The top-down, right. Now let's turn it upside down. Right and look at it and what do we see? Well, what we're doing is we're basically taking that whole picture and setting it aside and we're inserting a different premise as a thought experiment. And the premise we, we want to insert says, what if the climate crisis is actually extremely simple? Because the truth is it just boils down to one cause. The fundamental cause of climate crisis is that we're burning so much fossil fuel. So the solution, the primary solution to the climate crisis is to go about our lives without burning so much fossil fuel. And because it's 2020, and because the climate has warmed so much already, we wanna stop burning fossil fuels very quickly. And given the horrific consequences of failing at this, we, we don't want to fail. So the kind of, the new picture that I wrote about in the book is a simple mantra, stop burning fossil fuels well before mid-century and absolutely, positively do not fail. So the vision with the stretch goal. 
Right. So this is what uh, business writers call a stretch goal. And stretch goals have been used by by the companies that have made the most dramatic, rapid in improvements in their environmental performance. And, and when I won that cool California Small Business of the Year Award with Bowman Design Group, that's exactly what we did. We set a goal. A stretch goal is a goal that looks impossible. It has a metric you can measure. It has a time deadline. And it has a a statement by whoever's in charge of it, senior <laughs> right. management in the corporate world that says failure is not an option, right? And this new statement is very much like a stretch goal. Stop burning fossil fuels is the only thing we have to do. We have to do it well before mid-century and we absolutely positively don't want to fail. This recasts the entire problem into more practical and local and immediate terms that any of us can grapple with. Because rather than laying this complicated new problem over everything else we do as a society, as businesses, as institutions, as households, what we're saying is you have to keep doing the things you're doing. But now the, 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 the companion priority is to do the things you're doing with the least fossil fuel consumption as you can. And that means that my actions matter, right? It means the things that I say about it matter. It means that if I drive a car less, it matters. If I use less gas to heat my home, it matters. All the things that we can do become part of solving it. And as organizations, you know, I, in my business, I can't manage, I can't sort out how to change global transportation systems so that they're greener. But I could change the way we shipped products around. Or how your, your employees were commuting, let's say, pre-pandemic, how that... Yeah. You were exactly. able to tighten the mileage by how people were able to do business and then they could go straight home. They have to come back to the office. I mean, there are all those examples that you've been giving. Yeah, so this is, this is actually a really amazing story because it makes me feel so stupid in retrospect. And the reason is um, that like every business, I had a dozen employees and they all commuted to work like they do in every company. Two of them moved from Long Beach all the way out to Palm Springs, and they were commuting wow. together every single day. That's over 100 miles each way in rush hour. So it probably took them a couple hours in each direction, and they spent most of that time burning gas, sitting still on the freeway, right? And they were tired and stressed. And then people would come to work, and we had a, a shop that fabricated exhibits for us. It's located in Corona, which is between here and Palm Springs, but it's you know, it was a 40 mile trip to get the Corona and you go out there in the middle of the day, have a meeting and then you drive back to the office exhausted That's and then everybody nuts. would commute home. We did this for years, <laughs> just like everybody else does because it never occurred to us to think about it differently. But when we set a goal of dramatically reducing our carbon footprint, it made us think about what we were going to do anyway in a different way. We had to have people work together and we had to have shop visits. So we tried an experiment. We said, okay, you guys in Palm Springs, you only come into the office once a week. And when we're gonna visit the shop, we do it during commuter time. You leave early or you arrive late, but you visit the shop along the way so you don't drive all the way to the office, drive back to the shop, drive back to the office and then drive home again. And it was remarkable what it accomplished. I don't, you know, we didn't have those emissions measured by a third party, they're called scope three and four the kind of measurement that was available to us by the climate registry, they don't measure scope three. Okay. But I, but I know that we cut our employee mileage compensation in half 
And I know that productivity increased and happiness increased. People were more relaxed because they weren't having to work so many extra hours to meet our deadlines because they weren't sitting in traffic all the time. <laughs> right? By the wear and tear of that, right? Right. So, so the idea of a stretch goal is that it makes you look at things that you take for granted and, and suddenly recognize that there are a different way to solve them. And I, and I have to say, I mean, I, I really meant what I said. It made me feel stupid because we were doing the old way of doing business for years. And we just assumed that that's how business works and we had to put up with it. And so that's the same kind of mental problem we have when we think about climate change. We just assume that it's too big for us and that it's somebody else's problem to solve. And we're despairing at the fact that other people aren't solving it. And if we turn it on its head, we suddenly realize, oh yeah, I can think about the things I do differently. And now I can be a leader in my household, in my community, in my workplace. And we start to get our arms around what this problem really is. I'd just like to reintroduce my guest if you just joined us. He's Tom Bowman, a strategic communication consultant, talking about his new book with essential messages entitled, the book is, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? So at some point, now might be a really good time that there's a, we're talking about the stretch goals. It's not that from top down, it's sort of the individual owning the stretch goal or seeing a stretch goal and, and carrying it out. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to say that there, there's, there's a tension that is building between the individuals taking ownership versus campaigns large that loom large as the likes of Greenpeace that's trying to get at the front of the pipe, uh, get to the producers to turn off the waste stream, and you're talking about people at the end. They'll, when I talk with Greenpeace and other activists, they say, well, it's, it's nice to talk at the individual level, but we got to go after the big ones that are really producing all this. So that, how do you address, Tom, that tension between owning the, the large piece of solving versus the individual localized pieces? So that's a really good question, Claudia. And, and it's one that we all struggle with over and over again. You know, the worst thing that happened when Al Gore made his movie An Inconvenient Truth is he, he asked people to change a light bulb at the end of it. And everybody thought, that's trivial. <laughs> Why would I bother to do that, right? Because it, it casts the problem in the wrong, it, it casts a false choice. The problem that we have in climate and in so many other uh, sort of systemic social problems isn't a question of whether collective action or individual action is better. The problem is that most of us aren't engaged in the problem in the first place. Haven't right? been asked yet. We're we, asking right now, digging we, out. Yeah, well, we don't vote the issue. Only less than a third of people even ever talk about climate change to their family and friends and coworkers. Almost nobody contacts their elected representatives about this issue. Right, Most of us are so dispirited that we are absolutely sitting on the sidelines, even though we're wringing our hands and worried. I mean, the, the number of people who are worried about this problem in the United States is higher than it's ever been, according to recent surveys. Mm. And yet most people aren't engaged. They don't know how to engage. They feel the problem is too big for them. And so we haven't created a culture that assumes that solving this challenge is our shared purpose. And that's what politicians need to hear from us. That's what we need to hear from one another to create the consumer behavioral norms and the civic behavioral norms 
that will help us really tackle this at every level of action from the actions that I did as a business owner or that you do as your as a homeowner and all the way to national policy and the Paris Agreement and things of that scale. So, so I kind of reject the idea that personal actions are, are either more or less important than collective action. That's not the question. The question is, how do we create a culture in which we all understand that we have a shared mission here? And that mission is to stabilize our climate system before it causes so much damage that we're living in a world that none of us wants to live in. So Tom, before I get into where you've been really potent in dealing with business values, I wanna, while you're talking about electoral outcomes, I think we have something very interesting going on and an opportunity in the municipal elections. I'm gonna mention specifically Irvine's where the composition was, it flipped in terms of oh. who's, who is, has a, a charter that uh, would carry some environmental issues and whether or not that was a factor in the voting, we, we might as well say that it was a factor and hold them accountable. And apparently the climate action plan and the community choice energy, it got new acceleration the week meeting after the November 3rd election. So, and that, that was critical because so many cities want to work in concert in Orange County to adopt their citizens' climate energy elements of their climate action plan. So, so maybe I'm going to take a leaf out of your brochure, Tom, and say, mm -hmm. well, here's the people that are now in the majority of the Irvine City Council, and I believe the Santa Ana City Council's flipped their the uh, sort of ideological profile of the new council members, and say, let, and let them own that it was. There were environmental factors in this, and it was a very pronounced percentage difference of the one who successfully challenged the incumbent mayor in the city of Irvine. So I don't see that there are any perils in, we'll, we'll go ahead and just label it. We, we can own a value in climate crisis management and say, this is what happened with the body politic and take note, everyone. And take note that where it happened, take note that it happened in cities. This is so important to recognize. In fact, even Biden and Harris have recognized that the real action on climate has been happening for the, at least the last four years at the municipal and state level and at the organizational level. Well, I, I want to interject while you're talking about that. We're very sensitive to where that line is raised, uh, that, that date line is raised, Tom, in Irvine, because Sherwood Rowland, the chemistry Nobel laureate, was the... Uh, along with Mario Molina, they mm -hmm. recognized the connection with the chlorofluorocarbons and the depletion of the ozone layer in the 70s. And by uh, 10 short years later, it was recognized and validated. And there was an ordinance in the 80s adopted in Irvine to mm -hmm. eliminate the use of CFCs. So, wow. so that, and there's a, a, a sort of resurgence now. We have that opportunity with the composition of the new Irvine City Council to pick up where they left off with those model ordinances at the time. Wow, that's terrific. So you're in, so go ahead to what you were saying that maybe four years, but we could go back almost four decades, almost that can. many decades and say yeah. where there is evidence of that and it just got sort of sidetracked and other kinds of things. So to your point then about what the Biden-Harris 
transition team are acknowledging where inroads have been made in managing climate crisis. Yeah, so there's a, let me, let me be sure to, to draw a distinction between what's come out of the federal government in terms of political statements by political leaders, the past presidents, all of them, and leaders in Congress versus what has come out of federal agencies, NOAA, NASA, USDA, CDC, Defense Department, State Department, the, the organizations that deal with climate change on the ground have provided enormous resources to all of us in terms of scientific information and resource sharing, really important tools that, that everything from farmers to urban planners to emergency preparedness people can rely on. That's, that work goes on and it, it's available to all of us. We use it with, even when we don't know it and it's really important. What hasn't been useful is the political ping-ponging back and forth between let's have a carbon tax, let's not do anything, let's promote you know, uh, non-fossil energy, let's try to, to bring back coal. And all that back and forth nonsense that's been going on in the political sphere. And so all that's been going on, they're like the ripples on, of waves on the surface of the ocean, but you dive down below those ripples and you discover that jurisdictions that encompass something like 60% of GDP and 60% of the population in the United States have made pledges to stay in the, to meet the goals of the Paris Right, so as we're you mentioned. Cities, counties, states, corporations, institutions, universities, everybody. That's where the action is. And I think part of, part of the thinking that I'm aware of in the Biden plan is to, is to motivate more of that and to recognize that that work is going on and that it has to go on because this is where people live. This is where people make decisions that impact their lives in an immediate way. And this is where we experience the changing climate. And maybe that's their recognition that that is an essential ownership on the local, the individual level that may sort of lessen the resistance to stepping up our game in every jurisdiction. I think so, I think so. So much of the of the politics of opposition to climate action is based on fear, right? It all says that your lifestyle is going to be taken away from you. Your liberty is going to be taken away from you. You're going to have to take a step back in standard of living. And look outside. Look what happened in COVID in March when the stay-at-home orders suddenly gripped everyone. You know, we think we can't change course as a society, but in just a matter of days, the world stayed home. And as difficult as it's been for people, people sacrifice jobs and careers and businesses in order to flatten the curve and prevent the spread of a deadly disease. And when they did that, the skies cleared, air quality improved, the streets got quiet. And by summertime, those who were fortunate enough to work at home were saying, a majority of those working at home. Right, right said in surveys that they don't ever want to go back to commuting and going back to work in office buildings, right? We've, the people are starting to adapt to this new status quo. Not all of it. It's not all fun and games. You know, kids need to be able to go to schools and, and all of that. But we're also shifting our expectations about what the economy needs to be, what the business opportunities are going to be, whether we really do need to create smog every single day just to meet our livelihood needs. And as we focus on those benefits, even in dark times, when we discover side benefits for the actions that we take, 
those have enormous potential to draw us towards the lifestyles we want to live. So you were, let's get, let's keep reminding people that I'm quoting you that it's important to make the reality of climate crisis axiomatic and move on. Those are your exact words. Mm, so yeah. that we just keep getting back to stop use of fossil fuel, stop use of fossil fuel, just make that an everyday kind of thing. Every moment, every choice made kind of thing. So yes. you were talking in your book, you talk about values on the business level, that that's such an important domain where the meaning, the, the purpose of the person in the business, small businesses included, the goodwill is something that can be acknowledged and tapped into to get to that stretch goal. And they're, they're ready to flip their thinking there. And they, they are already flipping their thinking. So talk to some examples of how you and your consulting have helped move that business into that axiomatic thinking and moving on and realizing what you did in your own business. Yeah, well, let me start with a question. When you think of business, what do you think of? Do you think of Wall Street? and big corporations? It just depends. You, it depends sometimes. It depends on the context? <laughs> yes, indeed, it does. Yeah. Well, most of us hear more about Wall Street and big corporations than we hear about all the small businesses that, that comprise the local economies in our communities. And it turns out that half of American GDP and half of American employment actually comes from small and medium-sized businesses. These are businesses with fewer than 500 employees and the vast majority of them have one to 10 employees. They're everywhere, they're in every industry, they're in every neighborhood, right? And they generate most of the new jobs in our economy and most of the innovation. So we tend not to give enough, pay enough attention to all of the, the potential for small businesses that are privately owned because it's difficult. It's easy to see what's happened. You know, if United Airlines makes a statement, they're so big that it, that everybody can hear it and they have a press office and all of that. But the dry cleaner around the corner doesn't, right? And so you're not <laughs> going to know what's going on there unless you have a personal relationship with them. So the key distinction here that, I, and I discovered this, you know, almost by accident, is that the owners of small businesses like me don't have to respond to anonymous shareholders. And that means that we run our businesses and we make our decisions according to the values that we hold. We don't have to maximize profit for anybody else. We can define shareholder value in whatever terms we feel comfortable with. And when I say we, it means me as a business owner in context of my family, my friends, and my employees who I see every day face to face, right? There's no separation in a small business between the owner and the mm -hmm. employees. You don't, mm -hmm. you can't just make a policy that's anonymous and say, eh, I don't know how they feel about it. That's not my business because you know exactly how they're going to feel about it because you're, you're right there. You're in the same family with them, right? Right. So when I decarbonized my company and we won a statewide award, two years later, I was asked to give a, a keynote address to the winners of that year's crop of, of Cool California Small Businesses of the Year. And I thought about what to say. Oof. And, and when, I, when I got up, I thought, you know, everybody's used to hearing business to business talk. 
I think I'm going to set all that business charade aside and just talk about what my real motivations were. And I told him about the, the epiphany that I had about where we are in the climate crisis that motivated me to decarbonize. And I told him about all the struggles I had and the false starts I made. And, the, and getting over the paralysis, which is, yes. that's and, always and, there. And what it was that unlocked it for me. And then I described a couple of things that really floored me. One is that when we won this award, my largest corporate client called on the phone the next day and said, I just want to tell you how proud we are to work with a company that would choose to do what you did voluntarily. And I thought, man, you know, people spend money on advertising and marketing and you don't get a reaction like that. No. And it, and it suggests that there's a wellspring of goodwill waiting for anybody who decides to do something we all actually secretly care about. And then I discovered that my employees were taking a sense of ownership in the company that I'd never seen before, because now the company had more of a mission than it ever had before in their own lives. It gave them meaning beyond a paycheck or even a good work environment that we provided that meant a lot to them. They were proud to be part of it. It was a and multiplier. It was a huge multiplier. That it was. It was. So when I gave this talk, I, I talked about all of that. And I talked about my personal motivations for doing this. And when I was done, I was kind of surprised because one of that year's award winners said, can I say a few words? So I handed the microphone to her <laughs> and, and she told a very personal story about her motivations for doing this. Had nothing to do with improve, you know, she didn't do it to make more money. She didn't do it to reduce costs. She did it because she cared about it. And when she was done, somebody said, can I have it? And, and they told a personal story and the microphone went around the room to all these inductees and this to the award telling their personal stories. And it came to this one guy at the end who said, I just want to start by saying how good it feels to be in a business meeting where I can finally talk about the things I actually care about. Mm. And that's when the penny dropped for me, you know, that, that our biggest problem in, in climate change is that we literally don't talk about it. We think it's taboo. And there's now, it turns out years later, there's research that says one of the biggest problems we have in fighting climate change is that we just don't talk about it enough. So we don't break the ice. We don't make it a normal piece of social interaction and, and business conversation. We treat it like it's some, something for someone else to deal with who's far away and over whom we have no influence. Instead of saying, hey, this is my lived experience. This matters to me. And I'm willing to do things to try to to stop it, I'm willing, first of all, first and foremost, to say, I care about this, right? And so the question you asked about business is that in the private sector, in the, in the privately held segment of business, which is about half of our economy, business owners don't feel comfortable talking about climate yet, but they're mo those who decide to take action are motivated by the same personal motivations that every one of you, every one of us has. And so instigating more of this conversation is a good thing. And even in, in the C-suites of publicly held corporations, it's no longer considered okay to be a climate denier. So this is a big step in the right direction. It's not all the way there yet, but it's, a, it's an important incremental step in the right direction. So I guess there's, there's forms that we don't think are a natural fit, like you're saying, that the conversations just aren't coming up. And I, mm -hmm. I'm just reminded now of you're saying this, when I, I went to like an investment management group kind of a reception and they, they do this annually, this was like about 
six or so years ago. And we submitted the questions on little three by five cards and they could screen it. They could not ask the question they didn't want to, but they did ask my question. I asked Ah. whether any decisions made in investments in stocks and bonds, if they were guided by climate considerations. So that back to what you're saying that there, there was a, there the crickets, there were crickets there. They asked the question and they, and they didn't really want to say anything about that. And it, it wasn't exactly a, a really avant-garde question, but it felt like it in the moment. But I guess this is a, like an embedded call to action is that let's just keep finding places just to bring it up, make it as pedestrian as possible. Yes, and make it familiar. I mean, the 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 problem that you ran into when you asked that question is they weren't they just weren't ready to answer it. They didn't know no. how to answer it. And since then, BlackRock, the big investment sort of powerhouse, issued a statement saying that they're going to consider climate vulnerability as part of future investment decisions. And it it has the potential to be very consequential. And when Elizabeth Warren was a candidate for president, one of her key proposals mm-hmm. was that every corporate SEC filing has to declare the climate vulnerabilities of the of the corporation so investors can see what they are. This is a really, really potentially powerful tool because it means that investors are going to start driving corporate behavior in the direction of climate stability for the sake of their pocketbooks. <laughs> right? right, right. Which it's, there's been so many efforts, but it was something she's not codified yet, but it's at least it's in there. It's yeah, it's in, in, the, there. in the works there. But the deeper the deeper story is just how powerfully we live with the status quo. We default to the status quo. So when you ask those investors a question about climate change in their investment decisions, the status quo was climate change isn't part of our calculations. So they just didn't they didn't know how to answer it right? They'd never thought about it, really. Just like I had never thought about my employees commuting all the way from Palm Springs right. five days a week. And, and so the, the kind of the premise of this book, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple, is let's examine the status quo assumptions that we're making and ask ourselves, are these very useful to us? Are we happy with these assumptions? Do they really work for us? The answer is that they don't, and the replacement assumptions make solving the climate crisis a lot more accessible to us. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Digging Out, and my guest is Tom Bowman, a strategic communication consultant, talking about his new book entitled, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple? Well, I didn't notice she was mentioned, but I know you know of climate scientist, Professor Catherine Hayhoe, and she, mm-hmm. she talks about values. That's what, where she meets where people are. Like you're talking about meet people where they are. You talk about that in your book all over the place. Yeah. And she's literally evangelizing climate issues. And she finds that people, they respond in the congregational settings to the, where they can individually own this. Mm-hmm. Catherine is a fascinating person because she's a climate scientist and an evangelical Christian. And so she's been working to find ways to, to speak to evangelical Christians in a language that, that makes the climate crisis accessible to them rather than having them tune it out. And 
you know, there's the, the stewardship of God's creation idea right? And, and all of that. I had a long conversation once with a theologian named Sally McFaig, who, who wrote a book about climate change. And she made a really interesting point that, that really stood out to me. And that was that churches used to be political institutions all over the place. Back in the 60s, for example, the churches were so involved in the civil rights movement and in the anti-Vietnam War movement. And then in the 70s and 80s, they turned to sort of a inward, personal, individualistic, feel-good ministry. And when that happened, the churches stopped demanding anything of their congregations. A kind of accountability factor falling off. Kind of, yes. And, and what happened was that's, that coincides, whether it's a correlation or a cause, I don't know. <laughs> but that coincides with a decline in membership. Uh, of churches all over the country uh, in every denomination. And her argument was that religion is inherently political because we live in, so we live social lives and that means we make decisions together. And so to divorce spirituality from daily life and civic decision-making makes no sense. And her, her argument, it's a slightly different angle than Catherine Hayhoe's, but they they kind of arrive at the same place. They say that the role of congregations is to, is to confront the moral and, and social challenges that we face. And responsibilities. And responsibilities and encourage uh, the congregation to engage with those responsibilities. And let me make a really key point. I studied social ethics in school. I'm a preacher's kid. I grew up with this. And so much of, of morality is dished out to us as if it's some heavy burden that means we have, to, we have to do things we hate just for the sake of everyone else, even though we don't want to do them, really, hair everything shirt. in our being. A hair shirt. That's a really Freudian model, right. <laughs> right? Right. That our id wants to run wild and we'd love it if it could, but we need to oppress it and constrain it with this superego. Um, changing the world doesn't have to feel that way. You know, watching my staff in my company become buoyant and exuberant about coming to work was a joy. And breathing fresh air, even in the tragedy of this pandemic, was a pleasure, right? We can make the things we want the targets of our decision-making rather than always define these problems as if they're going to require just undue sacrifice that we can't possibly bear. So I, I wanted to take exception in a passage that I think that talks about how difficult that, um, some of these tasks are that you said that people don't like, they don't like manipulation or they don't like contrived statements. But I'm concerned, Tom, that we're at a place where it's not clear we're being exposed or subjected to myths or disinformation campaigns on name your platform. Uh, so. Yeah. So it's sort of, we've got we've to understand that sort of undermining of our realizing more of this potential that you're talking about, and then move on and find our role in amplifying what's really good going on, amplifying the heroes in our midst. So this kind of circles back to that excellent comment you made earlier about, uh, about it make climate crisis axiomatic and move on. There's a we have been caught for a long time in this battle for minds uh, about against the denial campaign, right? We've got to convince everybody that the climate crisis is real. 
And I would propose that that is a, a losing cause because the, the forces of denial are not going to go away. The truth is that almost half of Americans now say they have experienced the changing climate themselves. And 60% of us say we're either alarmed or concerned about it. And this is every, I mean, there are partisan differences, but, but this is geographically everywhere, right? Right. And so it's time to stop giving credibility to the idea that, that scientists don't agree that climate change is real because they do overwhelmingly. 97% of climate scientists have concluded that human caused climate change is happening. 97%, that's, yeah. that's a done deal, right? The science, that science is settled. Um, and so the, the question no longer is, is it real? The question is, what are we gonna do about it? And there are so many solutions to undertake that when we take this new, this approach that I'm advocating, we start paying attention to all of the positive steps that people are taking, the falling prices for renewable energy, the fact that you can now put solar on your rooftop and pay less per month for electricity than you do when you pay it to a utility company, the fact that, that an electric car, because it has virtually no maintenance, you know, it has a high initial cost, but it has a very, very low lifetime cost and it lasts for a long, long, long time. Um, and it doesn't pollute. So there are lots of things we can celebrate. Iowa gets 40% of its electricity from wind energy, even though it's a red state. The city of Greensburg, Kansas, rebuilt from a disastrous tornado as a model oh, yeah. green city, right? And, and I, when I talked to them about it, they said, hey, don't say we're being coastal and leftist for being green. Stewardship of our land is dyed in the wool in this part of America. We call it by a different name, but we care about it in the same way right. you do. Right. right. And so there's a, it's like, this is the stuff we should be celebrating. And there's a really, really important uh, sort of principle in all of this. And, and that is that we need to abandon this idea that we have to solve all the problems before we take any steps. Right. I hear this from people all the time who want to argue for not doing anything about climate change. They say, well, that's not going to solve the whole thing. Well, this action isn't going to, electric cars aren't going to solve the whole thing. Solar rooftops aren't going to solve the whole thing. The deniers are still there. How are we going to solve social media problems and disinformation and, and all of these things? Well, the answer to that is we don't master plan this. We activate everybody who's willing. We, we create new social norms around behaviors that are positive. People will adapt to those norms and then they will defend those norms because they're the new status quo and that's what we humans do. We defend our status quo. And that starts to marginalize the idea that this isn't real. It starts to socialize the idea that we're doing something productive together that we all want. Um, and as we do that, then, then new opportunities will reveal themselves to solve the next steps of the problem as we go along. We can't see all the solutions now. We don't have to see all the solutions now. We need to activate the solutions we can see and keep our eyes peeled for the solutions that will become evident to us as we move along. So I would like to know whether any of the Biden-Harris Brain Trust is reaching out to you. Um, they don't seem to know about me exactly <laughs> yet, but I'm working on a project called the Action for Climate Empowerment Strategic Planning Framework. And we are going to, we are completing a, a document that was co-created by 200 contributors 
from across the spectrum of educators to social scientists to climate justice activists to indigenous rights activists to a host of others. Uh, and this is a statement that helps frame how the United States can create a strategic plan for public empowerment on climate change. That's part of the Paris Agreement. And we're advancing the cause so that the Biden-Harris administration can take this framework, complete a strategic plan very, very rapidly. And there is dialogue now happening between the people who are working on this project and people who are part of the transition to put this front and center in the way the Biden-Harris administration will re-enter the Paris Agreement. That's our hope. Okay, and that sounds like that's probably going to get another big job they want done is coalition building, so they can get a lot done, able to see. Yes, because the idea is for the first time, all these all these everybody's coalitions in. can be strategically aligned for for a maximum collective impact. That's the, that's our all goal. policy. So I'd have to let you quickly give us an opportunity to how we can get a hold of a copy of what if solving the climate crisis is simple. Uh, so it's available from online retailers. You know who I mean by that. But and the independent can, book dealers are, uh, or is it your website as well? TomBowman.com? Yes, TomBowman.com. It's part of a book series called Resetting Our Future. And it's a series of very short, very punchy books by six different authors so far about different ways that we can think about building back from the COVID crisis and create a different society that we want to live in. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent online booksellers all have this as print and as ebooks. So as we draw down in our time together, I guess the kind of a theme I'm starting to see, I can't resist sort of <laughs> using in the show that you, you talk about the value of using humor to send your message out. So and I'm going to add to now, I'm just, I ask guests, are we going to educate or entertain ourselves out of this ordeal? You'd likely add inspire or recruit our way out of this or in keeping the E words together and using what you say in your book, we could exhilarate our way out of this ordeal. Let's create Beatlemania about creating the society we want. There you go. Oh, Tom Bowman, thank you. I really appreciate your invigorating, upbeat. It's a very heady message. It's, it's simple. Is not not the word to, to characterize <laughs> the approach. The simple part is getting started. The problem is not so simple. It's much, much more than that. So, Tom Bowman, I want to thank you so much for being on Digging Out today. I really appreciate your taking all this time. Well, thanks for having me, Claudia. My guest was Tom Bowman, a strategic communication consultant, talking about his new book, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple. Thanks again, Tom. Pleasure to be here. Well, that was my show. I hope you enjoyed it. And again, please let me know what you think of the program. See Shambaugh at KUCI.org or at my handle on Twitter, at CL Talk with you next week, and I thank you for listening. Yeah.